to the cycle. Boy, do I have a great academic on the show today. You guys know I like to bring the real experts onto the cycle. And today I have Francesca Tripodi, who is a uh, assistant professor at the School of Info and Library Science and a senior research fellow, senior researcher, sorry, at the Center for Info, Tech, and Public Life at UNC Chapel Hill. So just an absolutely uh, uh, stellar um, university there. She is out with a brand new book that looks at how propagandists have manipulated social media algorithms to create this mass psychosis event that we're all living through. So Francesca, so excited to have you on here today. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Well, the pleasure is all mine, I got to tell you, because this book is just terrific, and it's just such an important piece of scholarship at this particular moment in time, which I'm sure you and Yale uh, University Press both recognize. So can you do me a favor, and this is going to be a little difficult because this work can get a little little, uh, heady at times, explain to the audience exactly what your book is focused on. Absolutely. So my book is focused on a couple things. The first thing is that the way conservatives make sense of information is different than the way progressives make sense of information. And so the first thing I do in my book is think about how media literacy practices are dependent on this cultural ideology. The second thing that I do in my book is explain how conservative pundits and politicians exploit this practice of media literacy in order to spread propaganda and relate to their audience. And then the Great. third oh, oh. sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third aspect of my book is thinking about how by resonating with messaging, they're able to game search engine optimization in order to ensure that their information floats to the top of search engines when people go and do their own research on their own. And so by combining these three things together, they create a really powerful way of shaping the public narrative. Yeah, I'm really glad you set it up like that. And and it, and it kind of breaks it into digestible chunks for people because, you know, we spend a lot of time on this pod talking about asymmetry between the parties, how the parties are both political parties, but they operate differently. Their ideological structure is different. Um, you know, heterogeneity versus homogeneity. One is focused on policy and wonk and the other is poetry and pose. <laughs> and we know and we talk a little bit uh, a lot about asymmetric polarization and um, how the Republican Party is more polarized and more hyper-partisan than the Democratic Party. And then we spend a lot of time talking about why that is. And this is going to fill in, for me and my audience, a really good, impressive, um, a p- important chunk of the why it is. So when you said that conservatives process information differently, can you expand on that? Absolutely. So there's a concept that I created in my book called scriptural inference. And how I describe it is that conservatives tend to look at the text of what they deem to be sacred documents. And then they drill into these texts in order to create an individualized understanding of what they're trying to say. And then they apply those lessons to their life. Now, these lessons are rooted in Protestantism. So they started with biblical inerrancy. But they've expanded out from the Bible to look at things like the Constitution or the Federalist Papers or this is also the strategy that was used when Trump was first impeached, when he was trying to um, bribe Zelensky to have Ukraine interfere in the 2020 election. They released this memo, and then they said, read the transcript, right? 
And so this way of digging in to textual analysis is very different than progressives who tend to trust elites and their interpretation of documents. So most of us are not, excuse me, most progressives don't go to texts and say, let me read this myself. Instead, they say, okay, well, this is a new tax reform bill. I'm not a tax attorney. I'm not a CPA. I don't understand this legislature. So I'm going to trust my representative or the media interpretation of this to guide my understanding of it. Whereas conservatives are much more inclined to distrust elites. And this, again, is traced to the Protestant Reformation. And so they go into these texts themselves in order to dig in on their own and create their own understanding of what's trying to be conveyed. And and would you say that that's a feature that that um, like your average end user conservatives doing, or more of like the cons- the conservative intellectual and influencer class? That's a great question. So I engage in ethnography, which is a method of essentially going into different groups of people and being a fly on the wall. So I was very much embedded in groups of people, both a women's group and a college Republicans group, that were made of everyday Americans. Now, these people definitely were were smart. You know, they engaged with the news, but they weren't what I would call um, high-end influencers. On the other side, you see this same practice being evoked by high-end influencers. So this is what I refer to as the conservative elite. This is Tucker Carlson or Dennis Prager or Ben Shapiro. These media hosts regularly dig into the text and elevate a few lines of text, and they do this in order to support their opinion as supposed fact. And so you see this practice that's very much on the ground, being used by everyday Americans, being exploited by conservative elites who are trying to spread a very specific message. So um, when I when I think about like how this looks on the on on my side, right? So I, I run into people all the time, and it just resonates so much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think in your introduction of your book, you talk about how one of the people in these fly on the wall, um, you know, groups that you're observing asked you, uh, "Who did you vote for?" And when mm-hmm. you and you were of course very honest, so you told them, "I voted for Hillary Clinton," <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, and and his reaction is very similar to some of the reactions I'll get when I do engage with conservatives. Um, is like, is almost like a sympathy that you have been fooled, right? Absolutely, <laughs> right? yeah, absolutely. And I think this is what is so, what I found to be really exciting about my book is that the reason I wanted to do this study is that I thought there was this narrative floating around that somehow Trump supporters had been tricked into voting for him, that they were fooled by these like Russian bots or that they were tricked. And what I wanted to show instead was this really deep and profound meaning-making process that wasn't taken too lightly. People very much investigated what was on the ballot and who they were going to vote for. But what I describe in my book is that through algorithmic manipulation that most of us really can't see, because most of us really don't understand the tools that we've become so reliant on, they're still able to manipulate that conversation. But you're right. When I talked to conservatives, and I saw this also in research that I did on reopen groups surrounded COVID-19, there very much is this underlying narrative that progressives or people on the left are just kind of sheep with wool pulled over their eyes that really don't understand what's going on because they haven't done the research for themselves. 
No, it's so true. I mean, that's that's exactly what I think what the mass perception is, is that, you know, these guys just take everything um, that Sean Hannity says and there's no independent effort to verify. But you start to run into these psychological cognitive biases. And, you know, um, as you're talking about the way that they read a text of a bill or an article or, or whatever is almost you know, with the goal of, of finding one thing in it, <laughs> right? Sure. That may not even be like the the main point to either dis- discredit it or to, um, you know, validate an argument. So, so when you talk about these algorithms, can you try to tell us then a little bit about yeah. ha- what you've learned in terms of how this how this functions? How does how did how did conservatives learn to manipulate the algorithms in conversation using you know keywords? and other things to, um, you know, make sure that the information about a tax bill that they want the viewer to see is what they see. Great. So algorithm is a super scary word, but it actually is very simple. It's just a set of instructions given to a computer. And because computers don't read English or speak in, you know, human language, (laughs) they speak in ones and zeros, you have to code content in order to make it machine readable. So most of the time in algorithms, we think a lot of what are referred to as outputs, like what is the information that's returned to us? And I think a lot of people recognize this concept of a filter bubble. And like this filter bubble is this really scary idea that somehow all the social media companies and all the search engines are only showing us information that we want to see or information that we agree upon. And in some respects, that's true. You know, there's definitely been great research that shows this. But what I think is missing from this conversation is the input, so the starting point. What are the search terms that people are looking for to begin with? And how are those search terms tied with really specific returns? Does that make sense? Oh, my gosh, yes. I'm, I'm fascinated. Okay. And I can't wait to hear a little bit more. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so what I show is, so the first part about what I show is that this is um, not necessarily asymmetrical in the sense that um, conservatives and progressives both come to search parts with very different ways of seeing the world, right? The, the way we look at something like immigration is definitely going to shape the keywords that we start with. So conservatives might view immigration along the keywords of like illegal aliens and Mm -hmm. progressives might think about immigration more in terms of undocumented workers. So those keywords are going to return diametrically opposed returns because the phrase is tied to very specific content that uses those keywords. But where the manipulation comes into play is that conservatives understand how algorithms work And so they tag their content with phrases that both represent what they're saying, but also with phrases that don't necessarily represent what they're saying, but perhaps represent what they're arguing against or are key words and phrases that are only being discussed in right-wing information circles. And so because of this, they can really tailor, you know, they, they say stuff like, well, don't trust us, go out there and search for information yourself. Or much of, Tarko, excuse me, much of Tucker Carlson's monologue is actually presented as a series of questions, as though people should go out and do more research on the topic. But then when you go to these search engines, and whether that be 
Google or DuckDuckGo or I guess, you know, youth are on TikTok, <laughs> these key words and phrases are going to return very specific forms of information um, because they've been tacked that way. Does that make sense too? It does. And it's awesome. so fascinating because I think like, you know, until this book and, and this research, um, I think a lot of like my perception on, on algorithms and how they distort things is more echo chamber effect, right? Yes. So they, it sends you to like, you know, confirmation bias or what have you. So, But this is a whole different ballgame. This is saying from the very beginning, because... The, the rhetoric used on the right and the left is very different about a hot button top topic that, 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 that there's there's the you get you, you don't even get that <laughs> so like that is a problem the, the the algorithms sorting us into these you know um, echo chambers but it's but we're doing it ourselves in our in the way that our brains process and think about these topics absolutely so these echo chambers definitely exist some of it is driven by platforms that want to keep us there for a long time, right? <laughs> but we also have to yeah. consider how we, the user, drive that algorithm, right? An algorithm is an equation. It's not just one part. And then the other side of it is that by understanding the way algorithms work, pe people can be very strategic about how they get you into those filter bubbles, right? <laughs> they, can, they can lead you into an echo chamber without someone necessarily know they knowing they're going down an echo chamber which is which is the method of the madness right i mean if yes. you need, i think <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, so so on the left, I mean, it's not the we, th we, we think about the right a lot. Right. And we sure. um, understand, obviously, for obvious reasons. But it's not like the left is immune from propaganda and manipulation no. as well. Right? Absolutely not. Right. I, you, I, I draw on an example in my book. So Dan Savage, you know, very progressive personality, has at his disposal a podcast, a radio show, an extremely large network of influencers. He was frustrated with Rick Santorum when Rick Santorum running for was a senator and he was trying to ban um, anti-LGBTQ legislation. And so Rick Santorum created a new web, excuse me, Dan Savage created a new website called Centorum.com, right, got his followers to create an alternative definition for Centorum through these same mechanisms. <laughs> made it so that it was the top return over Rick Santorum's own um, political platform when he was running for office and really did a, a number on uh, on this man's name, right? To the point that many, many progressives can't see the the name Centorum and not chuckle a little bit knowing the underlying <laughs> connection. I started um, to chuckle as soon right. as you um, <laughs> so used the like, analogy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, so if progressives know what we're talking about here, right? And so it is feasible um, on on the left. And, and obviously that was a disingenuous use of this person's name. Um, it definitely wasn't the real definition of Centorum. Um, so it plays right. with this idea of reality. But what I explain in my book and what other scholars have explained in their book is that we, because we have these rare examples, we can't just conflate that with an equity. You know, uh, pro progressives and conservatives, conservatives far outnumber um, progressive, progressive news sources when it comes to radio, when it comes to yes. local communication, and when it comes to money. Right. And so right. a lot of these strategies are dependent on highly produced curated content, which is extremely expensive, and also not just being on the Internet. Right. So what I show in my book is that 
these signals on the internet alone would just get lost in the noise. But because they're repeated on cable, on radio, in local broadcast, and then through digital first content and through print coverage, you can create this, this effect much, much better than you can if you don't have that same network. And so that's why it's not necessarily the same. Of course, creators on the left could engage in these exact same tactics. But it's hard to when you don't have the same amount of money and the same network effect and the same audience. Yeah, it ties right in to um, some arguments that I've made institutionally about, you know, hey, the democratic space, because it doesn't have a ecosystem, <laughs> it is harder, right? And CRT is a great example of what you're talking about. I, I would assume if you had written the book later, you would have used CRT actually <laughs> as an yeah. example, because I, isn't that like exactly what you just described? Yes. So I draw on a little bit in my book because it was just starting to gain traction after the book was already in production, right? So I'm like kind of trying to edit some of the proofs, which as I'm sure you know, um, they don't like that. So <laughs> I no. can only touch on it a little <laughs> bit. Uh, what, I what I describe in my book is that a lot of the anti-CRT narrative really comes from this disingenuous positioning of Martin Luther King's own words yes. from the I have the dream speech. So they use out of context that um, when Martin Luther King Jr. said that he hoped he'd live in a world one day where his children would not be judged by the color of the skin, but by the content of their character. And so these anti-CRT initiatives lift King out of context in order to perpetuate this notion of colorblind racism, right? This notion right. that we're all equitable, we're all equal. And so... CRT is kind of like ruining the legacy of Martin Luther King. It's actually racist. Um, and so they use CRT to, to really spread that agenda. And what's fascinating, and, and as my book was coming out into production, on YouTube, when you Googled critical race theory, when you search for critical race theory, the top returns were conservative content, right? Um, yes. So, so yes, 100%. You know, this has become the... Dog whistle, dog whistle du jour, which conflates civil rights leadership with communism and fascism in a very interesting right. way. And what I thought was really fascinating while writing my book is I went back and did a lot of historical analysis to demonstrate that the disinformation being pushed in these agendas is actually not new at all. It's been around, you know, since the Reconstruction era <laughs> in terms yeah, of like true, stealing right? votes. Um, but in terms of uh, framing civil rights leaders as agitators, that was actually used against Martin Luther King um, during the right. civil rights movement. I was going to actually say that. Actually, you know, like the reason that Hoover had the, um, yes. at least justified, yes. justified his file was, oh, it's communism. It's racial justice and communism conflation, just like, um, you know, economic uh, populism and, and socialism have long been um, leveraged in that way by the right. But yeah, no, they didn't have a tool like they have now, though, to, to um, make it proliferate up. Yes, yes. And so whereas that, that conversation would have largely kind of just traversed along the radio, and I do show this too, um, anti-union propaganda in the 1920s was circulating in a similar way um, through radio. So this network has been in effect working for conservative media and conservative politicians and pundits 
Um, it's been working for them for well over 100 years. But by leveraging that existing network, combining it with the internet, you really have a very powerful way of connecting with audiences and making sure that your messaging resonates. I would say some very smart people feel like, okay, at the end of the day, this until you have a, a equivalent ecosystem on the left as on the right, you you can't hope to, to counteract that. But wouldn't what would you say to this idea, right? If 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 it, if if there's ways to manipulate behavior through these search algorithms and to push people, like is the left making use of the infrastructure of social media in the way that they could be in terms of of information and and winning hearts and minds? I mean, it's propaganda, right? Sure. I mean, when it comes to spreading falsities or spreading you know, spreading information that's not true, um, this is this is not. We don't want people to yeah, be spreading yeah. information that's not true. Um, but when it comes to influencing public, I mean, right, propaganda ultimately is the the melding together of brands and stories and ideas to influence public perception and um, create some kind of social change. So even though it has exactly. a very negative uh, connotation, it could be potentially used for good. And we've seen exactly. um, situations in which it's been <laughs> in used. Fact, I'm telling people <laughs> yes. right now, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a propagandist. You know? Well, I'm yeah, I mean, speaking, I <laughs> Sure, sure. Like we're doing it for democracy (laughs) and not against. Right, right. it's still propaganda. You know, yeah. (laughs) If the goal is to create a persuasive communication strategy in order to shift public opinion and really impact the democratic process, then it doesn't necessarily have to be negative. Um, But regarding your question specifically, I think I just forgot it. Shoot, let me. I had a really good answer. Yeah, I was, was going to say, how, Sorry, how can the left possibly? Oh yes, like utilize. Yes. I mean, so we yeah. don't no, have no, a, yeah, sure. a talk, you know, machine, but we do have this. We do have the same social media tools, at least, right? App- we don't I mean, have the same yeah. number of publications and radio stations. We don't have Fox, but we sure. have, you know, we have the social media tools. So how could the left better? I mean, so, some of it comes down to like tr- training people on search terms, right? No, no. Well, how, so how, actually, it really is that simple. So. Part of my research in this book is I partnered with a really fabulous data scientist, and he had written this script. So we pulled the the metadata, which is the fancy word for words people use to categorize their content. And so he pulled the metadata from the top progressive YouTubers and top conservative YouTubers. And we just basically looked at the data to see how are these producers framing their own content. And what we found is that progressive YouTubers are really, really bad at this, right? I mean, everything (laughs) from like super obscure uh, YouTube personalities to MSNBC. On the right, we looked at people like the Rubin Report um, or the Louder with Crowder, Jordan Peterson. We also looked at Fox News. And we tried to see, well, how are they perceiving their content and tagging their content compared to the way progressives are tagging their content? And it's like, Progressive content creators don't really seem to understand how the internet works and why keywords and tagging is so imperative in an information environment driven by search heuristics. So they are actually. Oh my God, I, I, I'm so glad that this is not a video pod franchise. Because like, <laughs> I was sitting there like, oh my God, that's me, dude. I didn't realize <laughs> until, you know, this book that I. 
I am not making it. Like you have the tag's not an afterthought. It's actually no. Cool. Like, yeah. No, so explain. Go. I'm sorry to interrupt, but go no, on. no, no, no. It's a great interruption. Yeah. So the tag. That's a great phrase. The tag is not an afterthought. The, your tag is the way that people are going to be able to find your content. Think about how many millions of things. I mean, Google tells you right when you have a search term, it's like quick sorting, like hundreds of millions of content immediately. And so when you don't tag your content, it makes it illegible to the largest search engine in the world. I mean, it handles like 1 billion searches a day. And so what we found is that conservative content creators really understand how the internet works. And so they tag their content not only with tags that represent what they're saying, but also they tag their content with ideas and concepts that they're arguing against. So for example, Prager University tags more of its videos with phrases like feminism than it does with conservatism. Okay, and then when you look at AOC, (laughs) so AOC. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I tell you, I have (laughs) a lot of people who are focused on like, okay, I, you know, they're doing great content. It's smart Mm -hmm. content. It hits back the Republicans, but how do I get people to to come to it? And and then you're telling them. (laughs) Yes, yeah. I mean, read chapter. I think that's chapter five, right? Um, Read just chapter five if you don't read the whole book, and it'll show you that the importance of tags. And so when you're when you fail to tag your content, it makes it illegible. And the, the example that I love to show is AOC. So AOC is the Twitter handle. Excuse me, for is the Twitter handle for Representative Ocasio Cortez. Now she created that hashtag AOC. That's hers, but it is it, it is like entirely absent as a tag in progressive content, and it is overwhelmingly used on the right to frame her in a very negative light. Right, so they have a really really lucrative understanding of how search engine optimization works. And they co-opt tags in order to spread the message that they want to spread. I don't think that um, uh, Brad uh, Parscale, who, uh, just for people who may not know, Brad Parscale was Trump's campaign manager, both campaigns, but most particularly took over and, and, sure. and had a very important role in the 2016 campaign where he took Facebook and, and really turned it into quite a tool for Trump, who's, whose campaign was under-resourced, under-institutionalized. I mean, very few party you know, um, uh, chapters within the states compared to Democrats, less money, less everything and certainly less talent on staff but yet he took this one tool and using kind of these principles that Francesca's trying to highlight for us today turned Trump into a jaggernaut online yes I mean and it's so and when that online traffic grows it's very difficult research shows us that once people see things online that are false it's very very hard to correct that misperception and so what's scary, right, and and other researchers have demonstrated this, that when these data voids exist, and this is just a fancy term for when little to nothing exists online, so a data void is like when you put in a search term and it's really obscure, there's going to be hardly anything that's returned to you. But propagandists on the right are exploiting these data voids in order to fill them with content that supports their research agenda. And then in doing so, they can drive more traffic to that. And they really understand the hyper-connecting role of the web as well. So a lot of their content is hyperlinked to other content. 
some of that content is literal cop and excuse me, literally copied and pasted from <laughs> one article to the next. But yeah. by having multiple hit points, it yeah. tricks search engines into thinking that it's more reliable content. And it also makes people looking for information think, oh, well, more than one source is saying this. So great, I can easily walk away with unsubstantiated claims confirmed. And then the other really powerful thing is understanding how the network effects of their shows. So a lot of these content creators serve as guests on one another's shows and then link that content back to one another. And that also helps legitimize their content in the eyes of the algorithm because it's seen as more connected, which creates another signal that this is legitimate content. I got to tell you, it's just another area in which Democrats have, have been asleep at the wheel and have been out strategized. It's certainly something I, I know the reason I wanted to bring this to bring you on today and to have this particular research discussed is the hope with the hope that people listening to the pod might be able to take this information and start to fix, you know, this this asymmetry. Because if you can't, I don't think I know a, a single conservative influencer that has less than 500,000 followers, right? So every time they tweet, you know whatever it is they're hitting you know this huge audience and you just don't see that kind of uh, volume and impact per person out of most accounts on the left definitely and part of my goal in writing this book it's it's written with a university press but I tried to write it in a way that everyday people could understand it I mean if you read the newspaper hopefully you can read and understand this book and so my goal with this book is that political strategists, as well as journalists, understand the importance of keywords and tagging and really take note into how they can get their information to spread. Well, not to shameless plug you, but I got to <laughs> tell you, this book has changed how I approach a lot of my internet <laughs> activity, most particularly my aversion to tagging. I just thought, what's the point? You know, I'll put two things in there, presidential nominations, Trump and Clinton or whatever. Yeah, no, no. It's, I think a lot of us think of tags as after the fact. And because we are often the ones in charge of tagging our content, Sometimes we do it haphazardly. I mean, honestly, I just did this the other day when I submitted an article to a journal and they wrote back and they're like, well, we're not sure this journal, this journal is a good match. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, I hadn't even tagged it with big data, even though I was using Google Scrape data and it was obviously big data. And this was a journal yeah. on big data. Right. So, so it's, right. it really does. I think a lot of us don't don't recognize the importance of keywords. And I'm you know, literally a professor that teaches it. So I don't, I don't think people should feel bad. I think that <laughs> they should instead just realize, um, oh, wow, these are very powerful tools. I can use them uh, in order to elevate the content that I'm trying to share. And hopefully we can create a more cohesive conversation. I think that's the other thing where you see asymmetry in my book and also in other research. You know, it shows that conservative pundits and politicians and strategists have done a very good job for a very long time at creating a cohesive conversation amongst their constituents. You know, really drawing together faith-based voters with gun rights owners, with libertarians. And so I think we, you know, we also need to be mindful if the conversation is about creating a cohesive internet presence, um, how can we transfer that cohesiveness on the internet to on off the ground movements. Um, that's something that conservative elites have been extremely, extremely good at for decades. 
And it's something that we have to, you know, so please get this book, especially if you're involved in uh, anything social media in your profession. And uh, let's start to fix this asymmetry, because if we do not, or even if we can survive our current democratic crisis, we'll find ourselves right back in the in the car again, you know, the Jurassic Park car. <laughs> if we <laughs> don't make car. these changes. And, and I just can't, on behalf of, of everybody involved in dealing with the democratic crisis, I just, this book is just such a great asset and it's and it's going to give people I think real power to start to influence change well I really appreciate you reading my book it means a lot oh, to have so me on this great. podcast <laughs> well you yeah, had me at you. propaganda <laughs> <laughs> thank you no it was such a pleasure to have you on today. I hope that the book goes well. And, um, you know, again, thank you so much for bringing this research out to the public and to trying to make um, our discursive spaces more productive on the left. Well, thank you for having me talk about my project. I appreciate it.